Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Escafil Files, a book analysis podcast where one diehard fan and one newbie start yet another podcast about Animorphs, the children's book series by K.A. Applegate. I'm Danielle, I use she or they pronouns, and you can find me on the internet at Talk 90 and my co-host is Jade. Hello, I'm Jade, you can find me on Twitter at JadeOxfordRose, and I use they, them pronouns. We'll be making our way through the books one book at a time, analyzing the themes and how they stand up to time, and sharing the experience with our friends on Discord, the link to which you can find in the show notes. Today, we're... we have a guest, again. Welcome, Kit. Yay! Hi! <laughs> Just rolled out of bed, but I'm here! Woo! <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a month since we recorded yeah. <laughs> book one of the Candlelight Chronicles. Has it been a month already? Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're here. Kit, introduce yourself for the audience. Hi, I am Kit, and I, well, I also go by Kitsy, and I use she, her pronouns. Mm -hmm. And I have been an Animorph nerd since about third grade in the late 90s, so (laughs) yeah, there's my flex. Raw. All right. Uh, we left off. We finished book one of the Andalite Chronicles. Uh, the Andalite Chronicles are split into three books that were originally released separately, uh, but have since, or very soon afterwards, were released as just one book together, um, which frankly makes more sense because it's uh, right in the middle of the action. They stop it. Uh, last time we talked about, uh, Elfangor as an Aurist, uh, finding some humans aboard a Skritna ship, uh, going to return those humans home, uh, finding out that one of the other Skritna ships had a MacGuffin known as the Time Matrix on it that is supposedly a very important, uh, weapon. That can it's a it's a time machine. It's a time machine. Uh and so uh Aloran, who was their commanding officer, decided, uh, eh, we're gonna not return these humans right now. We're instead gonna go after that thing because it's very important. So they go to the Taxon homeworld. Uh and everyone has a bad time. Some more very than others. Bad time. Uh Aloran starts to show his genocidal tendencies. Uh, and uh, there's no other way to put that. Um, no, I think, no, yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, and uh, uh, they all morph Taxon, go on the Taxon homeworld. They get split up. Elfangor is captured by... Uh, a yerk known as Subvisor 7, Esplin 9466, uh, and is threatened because they think he's not a taxon in their right. Um, but he manages to get away, and as he is flying back towards the ship port, uh, the Jahar, which is the ship that they were on, lands, God knows how, uh, and, uh, and it's it's a bad time. Chapman is threatening to turn over the entire Earth. I will More admit when I was re-listening to the pod... Oh, sorry. No, go on, Kit. 
when I was re-listening to the podcast, I had a moment of like, can you hotwire an alien spaceship? <laughs> yeah. Because like, these are, these are seventies kids. And my dad tells me stories all the time about how he literally could fix cars back in the day with like gum, a nail file and a paper clip. Um, mm-hmm. and I am not exaggerating. He literally did, uh, fix a car with a nail file once. Um, <laughs> but part of me is just thinking like, this is a seventies kid. He would totally be down to try and hotwire an alien spaceship because mm-hmm. voice command wouldn't work, but Hey, get under the hood and pop a few wires. Yeah. Maybe. You know what? Mm-hmm. Dante that shit. Dante and Kel that shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we I jump into that. book two, uh, we should go over content warnings again. Book-specific content warnings for this book include attempted suicide, which definitely happens this book. Uh, cannibalism, uh, which is it, their taxons. Um, more body horror than usual, which we probably actually won't get to this book, but taxons. Uh, PTSD and Andalite military culture and Aloran's genocidal tendencies. Um, so if any of those things are not, not cool for you, then please uh, take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Definitely. This, this is probably one like the worst parts of the whole book. It's the meat in the middle that goes hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Poor Arbron. Poor Arbron. But uh, we're not with him right now. As we left off, as Danielle was just saying, Chapman is preparing to sell out the Earth. Savvy young businessman he is. Um, <laughs> but perhaps more importantly, he has got uh, Lauren, Elfangle's crush. Not that he's said as much, but we're all reading the book and going, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> this strange alien with very beautiful hair. Yeah. Elfangor is valid, let me be clear. <laughs> yep. It's the the opening to this chapter is is quite poetic. It's a uh, <clears throat> Well, there are there's the part that's really hilarious and then the part that the very beginning that's really poetic. Um it was an impossible situation. I was alone, alone on an alien planet, scared, sick at hearts and overwhelmed. Remember, he's like 15 maybe. Uh I flew high above the scene, floating on my six pairs of wings. I was in Morph, a four-legged, two-armed Andalite transformed into a twelve-winged Caffet bird. Below me was the horizon-to-horizon expanse of the spaceport of the Taxon homeworld. Uh, and uh, right below me was the Jahar. She was like a work of art stuck, stuck in a junk pile. She glowed beautiful amidst the clumsy yerk vessels. Uh... And then Lauren's like, okay, what, what, what the fuck do I do with this, this whole situation? A Lauren should be dealing with this. Um, and it's he just, realizes it's, that, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I just love, this is such a relatable situation, even if you, like, obviously not the, the military part, but like his thought process of just like, mm-hmm. okay, 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 I gotta do something. What, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And it's just like freaking out about that. The, the entire fate of his people are resting on him, on yes. him. And he's just like, ah. And then priorities. What was most important? Rescuing Lauren. No, no, that was absurd. The time matrix. Everything <laughs> came down to the time matrix. Yeah. Because he just realizes like, oh, that buddy. Chapman knows about the time matrix. And if the Yerks infest Chapman, then the Yerks know about the time matrix. And that's bad. Beyond mm. bad. It's uh it's it's a situation. Mm-hmm. 
but he's able to uh, think on his feet enough to like um, for all that the uh, that Lauren is being badly treated. He's able to call down to her with thought speak and just like look. No one else can hear me as I do this. Tell them what they want to know. We'll resist. Don't mention the time matrix. Uh, if they get that, everything's over. You have to trust me. I will save you. Then we have a moment where, like, he he basically says everything like we've been talking about, like in the first half of the book, where we talk about Chapman like being valid in his distrust mm-hmm. of the of the Andalites. His little comment of right, she should trust me. Would I trust some alien who landed me in this mess? Mm-hmm. It's like him having this moment of extreme self awareness. Yeah. yeah, he can be taught. he thinks chapman's gonna stay quiet about the time matrix because it's his biggest bargaining chip and he's probably not wrong about that but i think he's conveniently forgetting here that the yurks can just infest them like Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think to be fair to him like the whole idea of being a controller is still like it's just a concept to him Mm -hmm. like he knows it's a thing he knows that like oh gross there's yurks in these bodies but like how many other species mm. does he know that have been infested other than Corkvajir and Taxons and like ones that he's actually encountered, you know? Yeah. It's like there's a difference between knowing something and then like knowing something. Also, adrenaline it, yeah. does screwy things for the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh so he basically thinks like, all right, like I just gotta I just gotta steal the ship. Steal a ship from the middle of a York spaceport and fly it away without being killed horribly. It's fine. We can totally do this. Uh, so he lands and he morphs back and then he morphs into the taxon again, um, which he hates more than words. Um, and halfway into the taxon shape, he hears another taxon approach um, and he's freaking out, thinking he's been caught and then the other taxon speaks to him, and it's Arbron. Uh, Arbron is cagey uh, in a way that we, if, the reason for which we don't really learn for a couple chapters yet, but we all know that something has gone horribly wrong at this juncture. Um, yeah, Arbron up until this point has been the Marco of Andalites. He's yep. been like, for the most part, very sort of like happy-go-lucky, or at least like very quick, smart, mm-hmm. and all that. And this is such a abrupt change in personality. Immediately reads as something bad has happened, or you're maybe supposed to be suspicious of the behavior at this point. Yeah. Either way, a flag is being raised. Yeah. So, uh, what happened to you? I asked. I lost you and Alorn in that terrible free- feeding frenzy. For a few moments, moments, Arbron said nothing. His silence drew a chill up my half-morphed body. I guess we got separated, Arbron said flatly. So, we gonna rescue this time matrix thing or what? Hero time, huh? Yeah, hero time, I agreed. But there was something wrong, something very wrong. I could feel it. Where's Aloran? I asked. I don't know. I just lost him in the crowd. Just you and me, I guess. Come on, let's do it. Let's save the world. Ha ha! Just what you planned, eh, Elfangor? Elfangor the hero? He seemed to alternate between being flat and emotionless and sudden bursts of manic energy. Maybe it was the strain, the fear, and the vile creepiness of inhabiting a taxon form. That had to be it. Nothing to worry about. Just stress. If I end up being a 
Yeah. <laughs> if I end up being a hero, you'll be one too. Besides, let's just see if we survive first. Yeah. Survive, he said, flat and emotionless again. Come on, Elfangor, finish morphing. Uh, and a, just a mm-hmm. kid. I know. Uh, and our uh, one is the same age as Elfangor. They were, yeah. just in case, going to be very confusing if you didn't listen at, and or read book one, but um, they are contemporaries of each other. They're yeah. like on a level. Yeah. Yeah. But um, here it's almost like Arbon is now taking, he's just like, okay, so what's the plan? Mm-hmm. And letting Elfangor sort of lead the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elfangor. It's, it's kind of that, oh, go ahead. It's kind of the same thing we've seen like in the other Animorph books, like when the kids are super stressed and like they're just, they're out of their depths. They always look for someone else to be like, look, I just need a moment to shut my brain off and follow orders. Tell me what to do, mm. please. Yep. You know? In this case, he's just like, look, he, j- he doesn't even ask me. He's just like, okay, what do we do? Just gives him no option. Just tell me what to do. You know? Yeah. Passing the buck, you know? Yeah. And uh, Elfengor uh, puts on the airs of the fighter pilots that he admires so much. Um, uh, tries to act nonchalant and basically is like, all right, we're just going to bluff our way onto the ship. We're just going to tell them that we are supposed to be here. And that's it. I mean, solid instincts, like yeah. the right attitude in a clipboard will get you places. Yep. And uh, it, especially because, like, the vast majority of these individuals don't expect to morph Andalites. No. Um, they get on board. Uh, the Geds that are kind of checking out the ship uh, are suspicious of them. Um, or at least one of them is, uh, basically, like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> Elfangor, once again, tries to speak Taxon, a language that he does not know, um, uh, to try to say that he's there for computer repair. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it, the Ged points out, like, a translator that he has, I guess. It kind of cracks me up how, like, well, well, we you often see, like, in these books how, like, most of the technology the Yurks have is stolen from or borrowed mm-hmm. from and modified from other species. So, like, the Andalites have a nice little translation ship in their brain. The right. dead who are, like, the bottom of the totem pole, you no, know, you guys get a wrist, ro- wrist watch. Good yep. luck. Have fun. Yep. Uh, I love this Ged. Like, you taxon wearers think you own the planet, arrogant as hork Like, the taxons do own the planet, bro. <laughs> well, to a year, their mind is we own the planet. The other bodies are just, like he says, taxon wear. These are just meat suits yeah. we get the pilot around. Yep. Um, and like Kit said, with the Ged being at the bottom of the totem pole, yeah. it's, like, it's presumably the least desirable thing to be a controller of. That could be like somebody who was demoted. Yeah. It's just like, you get a Ged now. Yeah. Which like is surprising to me because... I would be really surprised if any individual Yurk would choose a taxon over a Ged. I think the big difference is, is that the taxon body, even with the hunger, a taxon body is more mobile and mm-hmm. it's, it's basically just physically it is a better body because the Ged are described yeah. as being very awkward, very not well put together species. Yeah. Like every time I read the description, I'm like, what on 
God's green earth caused you to evolve that way because obviously they're yeah. not from God's green earth. But, <laughs> um, but like they're talking about like their lopsided arms, their their poor mm-hmm. eyesight, their poor hearing. And, like being in a get is just barely a step above being in a yurt pool in their natural state. Like you are the only real yeah. bonus is you are more mobile. That's it. Yeah, and only barely. And honestly, the get are from the yurk homeworld as well, and so they're not shiny and new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like yeah. oh, those old bodies. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's oh, like you what still they did got the, the ninety-seven the model. <laughs> Say again. It, it's like what they did to the kids in the beginning of the first book, where it's like, hey, you know, you get yeah. all these pilots flying the new model, and then you kids get the clunker <laughs> junker. That's just it's the training wheels. Mm-hmm. Mm. What did you say, Jade? I just like ugh, driving the ninety-seven model. Come on. <laughs> Uh, but they get on board the ship. Uh, they manage to just kind of actually they get on board the Skritna ship. They don't get on board the Jahar. Um, but the Skritna ship is the one they want because it's got the time matrix on it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get on board the ship. They note that uh, there's still a Skrit here, <laughs> just mm-hmm. going about his business. Um, but no Nah, and. Uh, they they close the hatch and just punch it, and they get yeah. out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Geds are like, "What the fuck are you doing?" But then it's not fast enough for them to take off. And then uh, Alfangor demorphs so that he can fly the ship better, uh, and because he wants his tail to defend himself, and because he doesn't want to be in attacks on anymore. Um. And he realizes that Arbron is not demorphing. Uh, and when he tells him to demorph, Arbron doesn't say anything. Uh, but Elfangor quickly catches up to what's going on. Arbron, what are you up to? Demorph, I yelled. I guess I hoped that yelling would make it happen, but I already knew. He stared at me through those shimmering red jelly eyes, and I knew. More quietly, almost begging, I said, come on, Arbron. Demorph. I really wish I could, Elfangor, he said. I really wish I could. But there's no time to talk about it. Uh, I have to get the Scrutinar ship up and out of the cradle uh, before it occurs to any eggs that it's being stolen. Yep. Uh, it turns out but, the taxon body is honestly really good at flying things. Like, they, they have really good manipulation with their claws and shit. Um... And what follows is a really cool action sequence of them flying the Skritna ship through atmosphere Mm. um, because they know that the Skritna ship is more built for atmosphere than the Yurk ships are. Um, In general, you don't want to fly a spaceship through atmosphere because the the drag created by atmosphere will destroy it. Burn you Um, alive, yeah. Yeah. Um, And so... Elfangor takes the ship down out of uh, low orbit and just just starts flying through Atmo with these bug fighters behind him. Uh, and it, it's a really well-written scene mm-hmm. um, with just like the, the snappiness of the action and just the the closing in on what will be a fatal speed, essentially. Um, 
and over uh, 3000 miles per hour basically over 3000 miles per hour which why are they using miles per hour i would say this is purely just like the author having mercy on their audience you know, <laughs> like, know. It's, it's the translation to yeah. uh yeah because yeah. <laughs> remember this is being narrated by an elfangor who has already spent several years living on earth Mm-hmm. So he would know Earth measurements. So in theory, he would know <laughs> to adjust for that. <laughs> if we want to give an in-universe justification to the author being like, "I don't want to make up measurements. Here's some miles per hour." Yeah, I mean, the benefit of just using what you know your audience will understand is that they'll actually understand how fast yeah. this is, mm-hmm. right? As like, opposed just, to like something else. To like bring up an example, like um, there, I read several like. There's this one science fiction series that I kind of enjoy where it's the Quintaglio trilogy. Basically, long story short, dinosaurs get taken to another planet and a small theropod species becomes intelligent. Um, and their measurements are in like paces or days, they kind of call it. So they're like kilo mm-hmm. paces, kilo days, but we never get an explanation to what the analog to in- like, you know, like earth mm-hmm. measurements are. So throughout the whole book, they're like, Oh yeah, it's like a thousand kilo paces from here. I'm like, okay, that's really really far and that's all that i know (laughs) (laughs) whereas they could have just said oh it's like x miles from here and it's like oh then i would have more of a grasp they could have even used meters and i would have had a better grasp of like the distances and like yeah yeah uh yeah we we have this and we we can't read all of this but it is genuinely one of the best action scenes i think we've had in the books Mm -hmm. like it it feels very cinematic and just it shows off both what Arboron and Elfangor are good at. Yeah. Um, but they quickly realize they're not going to be able to keep doing this for long. Regardless of Scrutinar ships being better at dealing with this, they can't do it forever. Mm-hmm. And um, we have this line of they're trying to decide what to do next. Like, mm-hmm. where did that line go? Um, yeah, we would send her in a few minutes. Uh, you know what's funny? I wanted to ask the captain what to do. It seemed ridiculous that I should make a life and death decision like this. The princes made those kinds of decisions. Captains made those decisions. Only I was the captain. And if I was wrong, we would dig a hole in the tax on dirt at 3,000 miles an hour. Yep. Yep. Um, Arbron makes some really excellent shots. Uh, Elfangor shows off really incredible firing uh, uh, flying skills. Basically, what they end up doing is like a, uh, it's almost like a drift turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing that, they're able, like, they bring it around fast enough that Arbron fires three shots, um, and hits three targets. I just realized that they're pulling a crazy Ivan. They drop and turn around. Yeah. So the guns are pointing in the right direction. Sorry, I just love the term crazy Ivan. <laughs> I like when people remember that spaceships can move in ways that cars can't. Yeah. Yeah. Just like use I, dimensions, like drop down so something will go over you. Mm-hmm. I do also like how like Arborn points points out that there's actually like the eyes are not great on the taxons, but their reflexes are amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he doesn't fall over when Elfangor does. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like there are like they, they do kind of like gently show that this body isn't like 1000 percent terrible. Like there are some advantages to the way this body is built. Mm-hmm. It's just like if the hunger wasn't there. you know. Yep. It just uh-huh. makes sense when you think about like how a lot of instinct insects and and like certain other cre- like non-mammalian creatures use vibrations and things like that. Mm-hmm. They rely on other senses. And I, there was a line briefly earlier about um, feeling the vibrations and things like that. And obviously the more limbs you have, mm-hmm. if they're very dexterous, in the same way that certain creatures use antenna and things like your awareness yeah. of your surroundings and your mm-hmm. ability to do things is different, but better than this in some instances could be better. Yeah. Alfangor uh, turns the ship around to head back towards the spaceport and Arbron doesn't understand why. Alfangor's um, like, well, I need a place to land and conceal it uh, and I need to be closer to the spaceport because we need to rescue Aloran and the humans. Um, and uh, then we get this this uh, I'm just going to read it. Um, Content warning for what is essentially a suicide attempt here. Um, We are not going back to the spaceport, Arbron said. The Yerks are back there. And Taxons. They'll catch us. Do you know what they'll do if they catch me? They'll eat me alive, Elfangor. Arbron, you have to hold on. You have to try and hold on. We were racing back across the dark mountains, back toward the retreating line of daylight. Hold on? Are you insane? If we go back there, they'll eat me. Turn the ship back. I'm going to use the time matrix. I'm going back in time. I'm going back to my life. You can't light up that time matrix. The power signature will be visible to every ship in orbit, every satellite, every... I don't care. I don't care if I die. Just let this hunger stop. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You fool. You Don't you know I could eat you right now? I turned my main eyes toward Arbron. I knew that inside there was a scared Andalite Aris, but what I actually saw was the nightmare worm. What I saw was the sloppy red eyes, the round, gasping, eternally hungry mouth. For a moment that seemed to stretch and stretch, we stared at each other. I don't know what was going through Arbron's mind right then. I don't know what conclusions he'd reached. I only know what he did. Uh, He screamed in his slithering, high-pitched taxon voice. He reared back, practically laying the upper third of his body horizontal, and then he slammed down on me. Slammed his upper body down, red mouth open wide. I could have killed him. He knew that, of course. He knew that no taxon could hope to outfight an Andalite. But I could not kill him, not even if that's what he wanted. I dodged to my right. He slammed hard into the instrument panel. Sparks erupted. He swept his upper body toward me, hoping to slam me against the bulkhead and stun me. I leaped inside his reach and struck. Slash, two of his needle legs went rolling across the floor. Slash, and two more legs were gone. Arbron sagged. The front part of his body could no longer be held up. He lay, fully prone, a huge, helpless worm. Just kill me, he screamed. But I was busy. The control panel had been half-wrecked. The ship was bucking and yawing. It was unstable. I reduced power. We had shot across the line into twilight, but I couldn't see into the deep shadows between the mountain peaks. You can't leave me like this, Arbron cried. I'm going to get you help, but I have to land the ship. Elfangor, you know what happens to wounded taxons. You know. I'll protect you, I cried desperately as the ship bucked and shook harder and harder. Uh, you can't protect me, fool. Nothing can stop them. Nothing can stop the hunger. I couldn't stop it. Aloran couldn't stop it. Don't you understand? I ate Alfangor. I ate that wounded taxon. I couldn't help myself. Shut up, I screamed. Shut up. 
I didn't want to hear anymore. I couldn't. I had to focus. I had to land the ship or we'd both die. I had to shut Arbron up. Uh, and he looks for a dracid beam. I found the power setting. I set it at the lowest intensity. What are you doing? Arbron yelled. I have to land the ship, Arbron. Keep quiet or I'll stun you. If you fire that thing, you'll kill me, Arbron said. You have the settings backwards. That's originally a Yurk weapon. Setting one, setting one is the highest setting, not the lowest. Suddenly, I knew what Arbron would do. He couldn't rise up, but he could still scuttle forward. He came straight for me, rushing and slithering as if he were aiming his round red mouth at me. He was trying to force me to shoot him. To shoot him with the dragon beam set on maximum. But I was too fast for him. I twisted the dial to ten. I fired. And just as my finger was tightening on the trigger, I realized Arbron had outsmarted me. He'd lied, and I'd fallen for it. Arbron had always been a better student than me. He was a qualified exodetologist. He knew alien systems far better than me. I tried to stop, but my finger squeezed. The dragon beam fired on maximum power. But by chance, or maybe some desperate too-late twitch of my finger, the beam missed Arbron by a millimeter. Instead, it blew a two-foot hole through the hull of the ship. After that, everything was noise and spinning and pain and confusion. One thing I really like about this scene is we really get a good comparison to, like, you know, like, if Tobias, what, like, weeks or maybe a couple of months of, like, being in the hawk before he finally lost control and just had that despair take over. Mm -hmm. Because, like, if you think about it, it's human brain versus hawk brain. Like, that's not, that's not a huge, you know, thing to compete with. The human can live okay with the hawk. Right. But a taxon is a sentient being. Like, there is intelligence there. So, you know, like, you've got this second mind in your head that's maybe not a, a person something. It's just another mind. But it's hungry all the time. Like, it's always there. And you can never get rid of it. So, like, it shows just how quick it is. Like, the difference between, like, an unsentient animal and a sentient being who's basically constantly fighting against terrible starvation. You know? No wonder the poor kid goes, he, he wants it in, you know? I mean, consider also that humans and hawks are both predators. Uh, oh, yeah. Andalites are... No. herbivores they're uh, obligate herbivores even um and the taxon is probably as far on the other side of the spectrum as you could get yeah because i don't think we ever do hear about them eating any plant life they always go straight for the meat mm -hmm. Oof. and there's and, like imagine like your first sense of taste being another that. dead taxon Ugh. Um, I really appreciate with that scene how scared they both are. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a very raw scene, and I appreciate that Elfangor isn't able to keep it entirely together. Mm -hmm. I like that there's that nod that um, Arboron, despite having to battle this hunger, is still enough of himself to trick Elfangor to yep. switch the power on the dragon beam mm -hmm. it, it, and it's one of those things in the same way that well, I, it's something you see time and time again is the innateness of a person being able to push through at clutch moments unfortunately in this case it's bad for the protagonist slash point of view character mm -hmm. but people being able to do the thing they need to do despite being in morph or in a desperate situation and there's there's something like an Elfanger saying about who manages to just pull 
maybe he just managed to pull his finger enough to redirect it. And the capacity of people to do what they need to do in really shitty situations is just such a cool thing to see. And while mm-hmm. it's not an easy thing to read necessarily, like, because this is somebody trying to get someone else to kill them. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, suicide by another person. Yeah. And that, and how desperate do you have to be? But he's still enough himself to act like himself to do it. Mm hmm. And it's I mean, just it there's something that his beautiful. Mm-hmm. Is Go to get it. to end. Yeah, it's beautifully tragic. Yeah. And I suppose the one act of violence is just like to be that's very poetic about it. Like being able to facilitate your end on your own terms mm-hmm. by being your most self. Yeah. I mean, like how Sucks. many times in other genres of fiction? is an act of suicide viewed as like noble. Like you have so many stories of like captains going down with the ship or leaders mm-hmm. of like soldier squads. He's like, go, I'll hold them off. Like how many hero stories do we have where we know a character is staying to die to protect mm-hmm. their friend? You know, it's like in all those other cases, it's framed as like a noble thing to do, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, this doesn't shy away from this being a selfish act and a tragic act simultaneously. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's like we totally understand why Arbron is doing what he's doing. And he has no reason to believe that Elfangor is going to be able to fix it. And all he can think about is how hungry he is and what he has done. Mm-hmm. That's so much. He's a young person. Like, what a horrifying thing to have happen to you. Animorphs for kids. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, this <laughs> well, is a kids' series, been- folks. When we talk about like this being for kids, like I do remember reading this whole book as a kid and it's interesting to me because like the scenes that impact me the most as an adult, it's like I don't remember them having the same impact as a kid because like it was different sequences that hit me the most. Like later on, I think like in the third book, there was a scene that freaked me out, like really made an impact on me. And it was the, um, what was it? The McDonald's scene. That's yeah. All I'm gonna say. Yeah. That was the scene that stuck yeah. with me the most as a kid. Not. Not not for Arbron, not what happens later on the spaceport, but the McDonald's scene of all things. So it's like kids, we definitely mm. register things differently as kids. I, yeah, I suppose it's part of it's like that emotional maturity and having more things to draw on. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I think I think Danielle and I have talked about this in previous episodes. As adults reading about children, it is intrinsically more horrifying than reading about somebody your own age. Yes, definitely. Or even like a as, older as, than you, like they were yeah. when I started. Yeah, as kids, you like read like young adult, and the the characters of your age are a couple of years older than you, and it's almost aspirational. As an adult, you read this, going, "Oh no, these babies! Will yeah, somebody they... please help these children? Mm-hmm. They don't have the frontal lobe power to handle this." <laughs> but yeah, it, it it is that whole adult fear thing. Mm-hmm. It's just like you shouldn't. Ha- they shouldn't have to be dealing with this, and it adds that level of horror. And as like an adult who's also like suffered from like suicidal ideation and mm-hmm. severe depression, like you read stuff like that and you can recount times where you have felt away and it obviously is going to hit harder. Yeah. Because you know. Yeah. But you don't know what it's like to be stuck as a giant meat eating slug that's always hungry, but you know. Mm-hmm. Despair is despair. 
Dirk in the voice check text channel. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna do what you were doing, so please. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it it's 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 A so lot. much and it's clearly one of the most it's one of the most tragic scenes in maybe the whole series even. Like I can probably yeah. count on one hand the number of scenes that have this much potency. Um well, can, and this, can this I add like one. a little spoiler warning here? Like I won't get into super details because like I know someone here hasn't read the rest of the series, but me. <laughs> Needless to say, it never gets easier for the kid. Yeah. Mm, it just no. keeps happening. <laughs> yep. yep. It's, uh, yeah. Elfanger wakes up. Yeah. Thankfully, we're moving into some of the uh, lighter content. Oh, yeah. The, the next, and of course, the next scene, we have emotional whiplash because it's one of just the. Mm. <laughs> it's that good, good oh, animals. Tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. I kick flipped. Off the curb, and it was awesome. Uh, I love how delighted he is by, like, air quotes, the primitive human technology, just like a chemical rocket, an actual chemical rocket. Like, he's just so, so, like, wow, like, look at this primitive stuff. This is so, you know, wild. yeah, yeah. So, for context, uh, they're there with the root, he's there alone. It's nighttime, and like, the loot, these boxes, see, Danielle, crates. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> um, but I'm sorry, this was pre-recording gag. Um, it's okay. But um, yeah, and Alfanga is taking all of this stuff that, along with Lauren and Chapman, that the Scritna took from Earth. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's searching for Arbron. He doesn't. He doesn't know where Arbron went in the in the wreckage. Mm -hmm. um, and he's terrified that uh, uh, Arbron didn't survive the crash because taxon bodies don't. Uh, have a great track record with hard Wet impacts. paper bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Thankfully, there is convenient dirt outside that can keep tracks that are very clearly readable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we see him taking in, like, the side of uh, frozen, preserved animals, mm -hmm. bundles of the artificial skin that Lauren and Chapman wore. I hate that description of clothes so much. <laughs> <laughs> Glass objects I mean, that seem to contain on what liquids. It's made out of. You aren't wrong, but also as a description, <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> um. You know what's more unpleasant? We don't always wear artificial skin. Nope. No, we don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, but in addition to all these small things, one uh, is a shiny yellow painted creation with four black wheels. Put a pin in that. Mm -hmm. um, and. The other object was the most powerful thing in the history of the galaxy. The Time Matrix. And it's like just a little off-white sphere. Not Not little. smooth. Oh, how big is it? Oh, it's ten oh wow, that is bigger. <laughs> I missed the size. Ten yeah. feet diameter. That's a big ass sphere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfectly smooth, unmarked. Sorry, a cat just leapt off my lap. Sorry, <laughs> and I you was are like, no ah. longer the chosen one. Eh, at least he didn't step on the control pad and stop the recording. <laughs> he has priors. 
little criminal. But, uh, so he's found the time matrix. He cannot find Arbron. The script cocoons are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, he's there alone on an alien planet next to this wrecked ship. Yep. So he does what we all do in this situation, apparently, and go pick up some literature <laughs> and kill <laughs> some time. I love how confused he is by, like, like the, the, the white cylinders stuck in their mouths. Like, it's just like... A- yeah. <laughs> he picks up a magazine uh, mm-hmm. to the listeners. Sorry. He picks up a magazine and he's flipping through it and there are these pictures. Because um, uh, most of the pictures he doesn't understand at all. But one of them was a picture he understands immediately. It showed a marvelously mm-hmm. tall waterfall. The waterfall crashed into a pool surrounded by trees, all of them green. Overhead was a blue sky. Two humans were smiling and sticking tiny white cylinders into their mouths. There was a human writing beneath the picture. I don't read human very well, but I was sure it was a poem to the beauty really <laughs> revealed in the picture. The grass there looked sweet. Um, and he, he probably a, feels Marlboro ads. Yeah, it's it's, it's a cigarette ad. <laughs> I'd be I'd be willing to bet money the way he describes the picture that like hey, it was like trying to get you to imagine like bridal falls in. Yosemite, mm-hmm. or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yosemite. Yeah, but yeah, he. he uh, I, I love how he says the grass there looks sweet. Like he just like, yeah. like that's what he wants. He just wants something comforting and sweet right now. He basically, he's craving a candy bar. He needs some sugar. Yeah, <laughs> a very fair reaction to stress and trauma. Just like I need sugar. <laughs> um, but he falls asleep looking at this magazine. But uh, in the light of day, when he wakes up, uh, as Kit uh, succinctly put before, he can see Arboron's tracks, mm-hmm. but then realizes quickly there was more than one set of tacton tracks. Mm-hmm. And um, the evidence of something large being dragged away. Yeah. So figuring out the taxons came, they took away Arboron and the script. Mm-hmm. And they, but they clearly left him behind. Mm-hmm. So, and he remembers the um, Subvisa 7 told him about mountain taxons who refuse to submit to Yerk control. Yeah. And uh, that's when he starts to feel a little bit of hope. Because yeah. if it had been Yerk controlled taxons, they would have taken the time matrix as well as Elfangle himself. Mm-hmm. And then this is a, this is a clever lad. Uh, he remembers from the pictures that he'd looked at Two humans sitting in something that looked an awful lot like the bright yellow machine in the cargo hold. Uh, so the elf angle just like makes the hole in the side of the cargo hold bigger. This yellow machine has in chrome letters written Mustang. Naturally, he has no idea what that means. <laughs> um, and he just, he finds the tape. Like, this is great. This is like elf angle trying to figure out how a car works. Yeah. And he removes glorious. the chair so he can stand in it. Yep. It's like, buddy, you didn't have <laughs> to remove it off. It's a removes top. the convertible top. <laughs> mm-hmm. I appreciate that it's a, it takes him 20 minutes mm-hmm. to uh, figure out how to <laughs> suss out the car. And as soon as he manages it, he's just like, it, the engine roars. He's delighted because, of course, he's a petrol head because he likes like going fast and flying. <laughs> he's a pilot. And he's just like, and it's a chemical engine. Something from a thousand years ago, ridiculously primitive. And yet I found when I pressed my forehoof on a pedal on the floor, the engine roared. 
it was primitive all right, but it vibrated in a most satisfying way and I liked it, which phrasing is an adult, but still incredible. <laughs> Cut to Elfangor standing in a Mustang, <laughs> racing across the Taxon Desert with one of his hooves in a pan of Dr. Pepper. <laughs> the wind blowing his stock eyes back. <laughs> Boy, but he sugar. The entire series. <sighs> it's so good. I love how he puts everything out of his mind. He's just like, for a while, I put Arbron out of my mind. I put a Lauren out of my mind. And I pictured myself with Lauren driving in my Mustang across the green grass of Earth, wind in my face, bubbling brown water running up my hoof. <laughs> It's just like, oh, buddy. <laughs> but there's something so delightful and charming and fucking ridiculous about all of this, and I love it. Also, could you imagine, like, experiencing carbonation for the first time mm. ever? Oh, the- <laughs> Man, that's got to feel weird. Like, do you imagine, like, I always imagined as a kid that I felt like pins and needles going up their leg. Mm, that's how yeah. I imagined it. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But, like, nice ones. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you eat Pop Rocks. Yeah. yeah. I'm just trying to picture, like, how would you react if you saw something that looks vaguely like a satyr with a scorpion tail just blast past you in a Mustang? <laughs> just like... <laughs> yeah, just like... Got... Do you guys get, like, those um, ridiculous rags in the UK, which, like the Sun Times or something like that, where it's just like, mm-hmm. bat baby found in woman's basement, you know? Yeah. Or, like, I'm just imagining, like, one of those emblazoned with, Centaur found racing across Arizona desert, stole Mustang from poor homeowner. Is that like <laughs> New? Is that the New York Inquirer as well? Like yeah, yeah the National right. Inquirer also does. Yes. That, yeah. uh, Imagine being the new cryptid of the, <laughs> oh my God. just because you were spotted driving a fucking Mustang. <laughs> yep. Uh, Fuck. I love this. An oh. Andalite in a Mustang was going to be just slightly obvious. I would need stealth. <laughs> And then we pivot back to uh, seriousness, but I would not morph to Taxon again. Not ever. And then the ground underneath him just opens up. Bye-bye, Mustang. And he just, he's still in the Mustang, like, driving through a sudden tunnel, Mm -hmm. just following a dirt ramp. What? I was going to say, that is a noisy kitty. Secret tunnel? Secret tunnel. (laughs) For my Avatar fans out there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and it, it, it just keeps, <laughs> I love the idea, of the, the music is blasting the whole time, by the way. Yeah, because um, he figured out how the tape deck works, yeah. which he did recognize as a technology he knew, which is just great. Yeah, and apparently he doesn't hate it quite as much as Axe does, except that we get this one line, the only sound was the noise of the engine and the weird human moaning that passed for music. <laughs> I do like that that is such a good, like, old brother dad vibe. Just like, yeah. oh, I hate your music. The Honky Tonk Blues, though, is kind of a bit of a moany song, though. To be yeah. fair. <laughs> um, says the yeah. girl who grew up on old country music. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he comes to a stop where he slides to a halt, kills the engine, uh, turns off the music, and he's in this vast underground cavern. Um, and his eyesight's slowly adjusting to being in the dark and realizes um, that he is in the middle of a taxon hive. Yep. And that there are hundreds of taxons. 
They swarming. They are swarming over a glowing red mountain in the center of the cavern. Um, and the the tunnels are almost like tendrils coming out from it. Um, more and more taxons come out. Uh, they kind of sort of surround him, but not really. Um, they're also pushing dirt and rock back into place to fill up the the hole that <laughs> the Mustang came down. And then uh, Elfangor hears a voice in his head that asks, is this the creature? And it's in all caps, so it's like something suddenly screaming in, my he- in his head. The voice in my head was huge, massive. I grabbed my, hand, my head with both my hands. It was like hearing a planet speak. It was only then, as I staggered under the psychic blow, that I realized it. The Red Mountain was alive. Uh, and Arbron comes forward. Uh, yes, that's him, Arbron said. He is called Elfangor. One taxon came slithering toward me out of the mass of bodies around the base of the Red Mountain. It moved clumsily. Two rows of legs were shorter than the others. Um, Elfangor is like, I'm so fucking glad you're alive. Um, uh-huh. And Arbron uh, says that he now serves the Living Hive. Uh, Light of the taxons, mother and father of the taxons, the hive has lost many of its children to the Yerks. Many of its servants have betrayed the hive and made an alliance with the Yerks. But the living hive is still the mother and father of the species. Arbron, what are you talking about? Have they done something to you? Then he laughed, the old Arbron again, for just a moment. Have they done something to me? Well, they didn't eat me, if that's what you mean. The taxons who found us after we crashed wanted to eat us both, but I gave them the scrit instead. I had no choice. And then the living hive learned that what I was. It drew me here. The living hive's tunnels extend across thousands of miles. There's suction in the tunnels. A taxon has only to fold back its legs, and the pressure draws it swiftly down the tunnel as the hive commands. Uh, And we learn that the living hive is angry. It's pissed. It's fucking pissed. And and Elfeng was like, at me? I asked, feeling my guts and turn over like, several no. times. If this glowing red mountain was mad at me, all it had to do was yell in its monstrous psychic voice and I'd be shattered. The living hive is tired of losing its children to the Yurks. The living hive has long sought a way to destroy the Yurk invaders and remove them from this planet. But the hive could not understand the Yurks and their machines. Now... The Hive has an advisor, someone who understands machines, spaceships, dragon beams, someone who will help the Hive destroy the Yerks and their traitor taxons. Uh, and Elfanger's like, you mean you? Uh, and Arbon's like, what, what else is there for me, Elfangor? I'm a taxon, and I'm preparing a surprise attack on the spaceport, and I'm gonna lead a taxon rebellion. Uh, and he's like, don't pity me, Elfangor. Um, he is, in fact, glad that Elfangor didn't kill him. Any life is better than none. And no matter how awful things seem, there is always meaning and purpose to be found. Elfangor uh, asks if he's found his purpose. And Arbron's like, the living hive is pushing her tunnels closer to the spaceport. A thousand taxons will pour from the ground, surprising the Yerks and all their creatures. And uh, Elfangor says rightly that the taxons will lose because, again, wet paper bag. Uh, and the taxons know that, but they have, they have to resist. They have to try. They have to do Which something. Is, wait, well, I like that he stresses he has the right to. 
Yes. Every, even a taxon has the right to control its own planet. Even a taxon has the right to resist an invader. No, yeah. one thing I thought of last night, like when rereading and double checking the book, is that the, the living hive, it's kind of an interesting parallel, just, just a very gentle, subtle one, to Cassie and the Teramite Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, this hive is literally alive. This is literally a thinking giant being that gener- like presumably creates taxons. Like we never get more details on it, but here's this giant living being that wants to protect its children. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not evil. It's not evil. It's not you know good or bad. It just is, and its children have been taken from it. And, you know, again, like it's with the Teramite Queen, it has ultimate control over the taxons that live within its hive. So I just find it interesting that they have something like this and they don't like it's it's portrayed in a very neutral way. It's not good. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. It's just a being that is. Yeah, I think, too, of the. Um, uh, when I forget which book it was. Um, but basically, Cassie calls out for the whales to help, and they come and fuck up Visitor yes. 3. Mm-hmm. And, and she's like, it's almost as if, like, Mother Earth herself uh, sent them to to fight one, off this invasion. Um, if there's one thing Applegate really does seem to love, it's massive psychic entities that appear <laughs> once in a while to really shake up the kids. Like, hello, <laughs> you think you have met all the weird things in the Earth, or the universe, <laughs> but you haven't met me yet. Yeah. As I, as I said in that episode, and Dirk reminded me in the uh, chat as they make their way through the back catalogue, it's just like, that ain't psychic, that's Eldritch. And yeah. I'm here for it. <laughs> um, Baby's introduction, introduction to Lovecraftian. Yeah, but it, it definitely <laughs> reminds me of that idea of a planet defending itself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I really appreciate that we have this line from Arboron after Elfank was just like, but you can't win. And Arbron says, aren't lost causes sometimes the best causes of Angor? Just like, hmm, there's, there's a mission statement right fucking there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Elfangor's like, how could he do How could he imagine that anything to do with taxons would be a good cause? They're no less cannibalistic, no less murderous. And yet if they oppose the Yerks, could I refuse to offer that help? And she's like, a little sanctimonious there, Elfangor. Like, you don't actually know anything about taxons that aren't controlled by Yerks. But- this child gently just clutching like, out whatever he can to hold his mental stability. But, yeah, what he does know. Stable. Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, he's just like, tell me what I can do to help Arbron. And he's like, that's more like it, Elfangor. We'll put some tail blades into those yurks, right? Right. We'll be heroes after all. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. So he spends the rest of the day in the underground cave with the hive. Yeah. Um. Arboron is communicating with the Living Hive, making plans. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alfangor, like, observes that Arboron had become a general. Mm-hmm. Love how this book, these books keep referring back to that particular turn of phrase. Doesn't feel foreboding about certain other people taking responsibility mm-hmm. and dealing with powerful <laughs> creatures. This book really does set up a lot of good foreshadowing for the latter half of mm-hmm. the series. But yeah. Um, and he re- observes that how how alive, almost on fire, Arboron seems. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, Arboron comes up to Elfangor, which is like, there's a delicate problem <laughs> um, we have mm-hmm. to discuss. 
Aloran and the humans, you know what this will be like. Taxon against Taxon controllers. Taxon against hawk Bajir. No one will be safe from either side. And Arbron tells him, if you can find them, um, do. But really, what you need to do is get the Time Matrix safely away. It's no more safe. The ty- Living Hive is no more safe from the Time Matrix than anything else. And um, Arbron will help uh, Alfangor get to the Jahar. And Alfangor, bless, is just like, and then you can leave with me. And Arbron's just like, no, Alfangor, I'm staying here. We'll lose this battle, but there may be other chances to hurt the Yerks. I didn't know what to say. I guess I felt like only Arbron could decide for Arbron now. I'll tell your, I'll, I'll tell your friends. No, he said sharply. No, Elfangor. Tell them I died in battle. Let them remember the way, me the way I used to be, okay? I don't want them to remember me like this. I don't want them picturing me this way. And Elfangor's like sort of overcome by this. And Arbron's just like, I got some planning to do. We've, we've put your machine in one of the tubes. You'll go last. And then you just get fired out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just like, but there's, he clarifies, like, the spaceport's going to be hell. And he's emotionless at this point. You won't be able to tell the difference between my taxons and taxon controllers. So don't hesitate. Do what you have to do. And then he walks away. Yep. It takes a long time for all of the taxons to be sent. Uh, they were launched at a rate of one every eight seconds or so, down five separate tubes. It took almost half an hour for all the taxons to enter the tubes, and then it was my turn. Uh, he pushes the Mustang toward the tube, and then all of a sudden, whoosh, uh, he went, goes from zero to 200 miles per hour in seconds. There was nothing exhilarating about this. I was blasting down a living tunnel, enclosed on all sides, ducking my head to avoid having my stock eyes scraped off. The only light came from the machine's own lights. White looking ahead, red looking back. Uh, and then suddenly he's out into the air. Uh, <laughs> the, and the wheels spin, uh, but eventually he hits the ground. The wheels catch. Um, he, <laughs> he scrapes himself bloody uh, because it's effectively a car accident. Um, Smashes into a taxon that bursts open like a bag of garbage. Yep. Uh, and I just and like it's just it's madness. It was uh, it was only one small piece of horror in a scene that will be burned on my brain forever. Yep. But there's Taxon screaming, Hulk Bajir roaring, the tsu tsu of dragon beams. Sorry, that was fun. <laughs> As scenes of nauseating violence were everywhere. The battle had already raged for half an hour. Half an hour of unarmed Taxons against bladed Hawk Bajir. It was a slaughterhouse. Um, and he, he despairs about being able to find the humans in the awful battle. Um, but he basically points himself towards the Jahar, uh, hits literally everything in his way, um, and, and, and races towards it. Um, and he can see that the humans are actually right next to the ship. Um, a whole bunch of taxons are trying to get up the ramp to get to the humans because they're uh, not bladed and tasty. Um, and alone at the top of the ramp is a single taxon with four legs shorter than the rest. Elfangor uh, uh, is screaming out to Arbron um, 
as he slams the Mustang into the mass of ravening taxons. Um, I would are these taxon like to interject, controllers or your soldiers? Um, I would like to interject that uh, they do seem to enjoy describing Hork-Bajir being cartwheeled, yeeted, and variously <laughs> thrown throughout the books. Because like this one Hork, uh, Hork-Bajir controller gets mm-hmm. clobbered in the legs by the Mustang and cartwheels over the car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just, I, I keep thinking of like all these other books where it's described as like the poor hork just being like thrown into the air. It's like such a common occurrence to these poor things. Yeah. I suppose it leads to that whole thing just like in the same way that the kids do a very sort of dismissive of what the hork are and the stuff in their ends of Andalites. They're taking their cues from the Andalites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way they view hork Yeah. Um, uh-huh. but, and which is deeply sad. And then, it gets sadder because, yeah. um, and because Elfangle's just like, Arbron, who are the diff? Are these your soldiers or the controllers? And Arbron's just like, there's no difference anymore. Don't you see? Blood has been spilled. The hunger, the hunger. Stop me, Elfangle. Stop me. And then with that, Arbron, Aris of the Dome Ship Star Sword, lost his last shred of control. He turned from facing down the taxon mob. He turned and ran for the humans, mouth gaping open. And then Alfangor leaps out of the Mustang and hacks and slashes his way through the taxon, just like he did against the Hawk-Bajir in the ship before. And uh, Arborn's racing towards Chapman um, and rears back and is ready to slam his upper body down on him. Uh, And Alfangor cries out, Aris Arbron. Aris Arbron, you will stop. You will do your duty. I don't know what made me say that. I don't know. I only know that Arbron hesitated. As Chapman cowered helpless, Arbron, Arbron remain, remained poised. Uh, and it's enough time for the taxons behind him to fall back. Uh, and hork are coming forward. And one of the hork is Subvisor 7. Because of, so- because of, of course, course it is. Of course it is. Of course <laughs> Subvisor 7 is here. Subvisor 7 is always here. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's on his fucking bullshit. Ah, so we meet again, Andalite. And he's like, sounds like Elfangor, right? That was the name you yelled so defiantly at me as you escaped? I was, and I just, I fucking love this scenery-chewing motherfucker. He's the worst. I fucking love it. <laughs> oh, and he's just like, oh, I'm so glad the taxons didn't get you. I wanted you for myself. <laughs> That's some good foyer. Fuel right there is what I'm saying. <laughs> I've been in fandom a long time. Okay, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> anyway, the Tanger Taxons are getting out of the way of the Hawkbajir. We've got Alfangor there, Chapman and Lauren. Arbron, who's still kind of hungry and he's just like looking at Lauren like the legit snack she is. <laughs> um and Elfango doesn't know whose side Chapman's on, whose side's Arbron on. And Subvisor 7, practically purring. I, so, I, I talked about the queer coding of mm-hmm. Visa 7, uh, Subvisor 7 slash Visa 3 before. I stand by it. I just wish I didn't like it quite so much. <laughs> <laughs> this is, look, I'm queer. I'm allowed to like the queer coded villains for being the awful people that they are. <laughs> but also, K Applegate, I see you. Tisk tisk. Anyway, he's doing his great sort of 
Shakespearean Bond villain talking. Uh, he's just like, you've got two choices. I'm just like, and this is really delightfully sinister. I won't kill you. I'll just use you. I'll leave this crude body and live inside your head. I'll wrap myself around your smug, arrogant, andalite brain and make you my slave. And with your andalite morphing power, run the galaxy before I'm done. It's either that or death, andalite. There's no third choice. It's amazing how often villains say that, and often the heroes choose a third choice anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah. I really can't wait for you to read the Horkbajir Chronicles. Oh, me too. <laughs> um, but yeah, Arboron turns away from Lauren, comes to stand next to Elfangor, and just like, guess we're a long way from the good old star sword, eh, Elfangor? With a touch of his old humor. We are one lost, lonely pair of Aeroths. Tell the Yerk scum to dream on Elfangor. Tell him we are Andalites. We don't surrender. Um, you are my, you heard my friend, Subvisa Seven. I said, you want me? Come get me. In the great stories and legends, that kind of speech always scares the bad guys. But in real life, it doesn't work that way. Okay. So Mr. Seven said, I will come get you. <laughs> Sorry, that's real funny to me. It's good. It uh, <sighs> okay. Uh, cut him down. Cut him down. He screamed in sudden rage. The Hawk Bajir charged, but the ramp is narrow, they, so they can only run up two at a time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Elfangor, like, tail blade goes, like, takes off wrists and tails and blades and the odds are getting bad. Um. And then suddenly mm-hmm. a new hork step steps forward. And so, uh, yeah, speaking in thought speak, a Lauren in hork yep. morph. And just like, hey kids, are you enjoying the war? <laughs> <laughs> and just it, it's very Aloran. It's very war movie esque, mm-hmm. um, and like this really throws Elfangor because he's just like he almost misses his next shot, uh, his next hit. But um, Aloran gets his tail blade, uh, so it gets a blade up against the Visa Seven's throat. Mm-hmm. Just like call off your men, or I'll laugh when your head goes rolling across the ground. Which, to be fair, that's pretty sick. <laughs> and Subvisor 7 proving that he is not holding the idiot ball all the time just like yeah okay <laughs> hold back off um, and uh, so the whole Bajir back off Elfangor bless him is exhausted bleeding and Lauren comes over mm-hmm. and uh, is like pressing her hands against a wound in a, on Elfangor's chest and she's yep. just like you're still alive I'm so worried and it's very good. It is. I love that it's the and, chest as well. Not the yeah. arm. Not anything like yeah. that. Just like, get your hands on those Andalite titties, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I heard Andalites were ripped. I heard they had an eight pack. <laughs> I heard Elfango was shredded. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is a serious <laughs> podcast where we talk about. <laughs> Anyway, Aloran is laying down the law. That's fine. The two humans, his two friends, Mm -hmm. are going to get aboard the the Jahar, and you, Subvisor 7, are coming with us. Once we're off the cradle, we'll toss you back out. How does that plan sound to you? 
Um, it's a choice villaining, just like, how does that say? Just like, do I have a choice? <laughs> There's always a choice, Yerk. I can cut you right out of that Hawkbajir and feed your impotent slug body to my friend the taxon here. That's one choice. Or you can order your men back down the ramp, all the way down. What became of the Andalite reputation for kindness and gentleness, the Yerk mocked. What happened? We left that image in the ashes of the Hawkbajir homeworld. You were there. I was there. My name is Aloran Simitur Kurath. War Prince Aloran. For the first time, the sub seemed afraid. His mocking, arrogant attitude seemed to evaporate. He quickly ordered his hawk Bajir down the ramp. So, you know, nice to know that reputation will do something for you. Mm-hmm. Well, not just that, but like, this guy is also a hawk Bajir control- controller. Who better to know what Aloran did than mm-hmm. a hawk Bajir exactly. controller? And as we find out later, like, Sub Vista 7 was on the Hawk yes. Bajir homeworld, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Very much so. so. He, he was an eyewitness. Yep. So. Uh, Elfengra tries to get Arbron to come with them, um, but Arbron's like, there's no future for me there. There's no future for me anywhere. Um, but you can't, I said. Who's going to remind me not to be so stiff? Who's going to laugh at me when I start talking about being a great prince? You go, Elfengor, Arbron said gently. Go save the galaxy. Leave him, Aloran said. Arith's, I mean, warrior, Arbron, is a casualty of war. Hey, fuck Andalite military culture. (laughs) I was going to say, I wish Izzy was here because I'm sure Izzy would just be like going off right now about um, what do they call it, like post-mortem promotion or whatever they call it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, Posthumous. Posthumous, thank you. Let, let's it's, just it's uh, early and I'm still like going through breakfast. So <laughs> okay, let's just insert some uh, pause a moment just to imagine Izzy yelling. I can hear it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. But they launch the Yaha. Jaha. There's no yep. one stopping them. The battle's still going. None of the Yerks. The Yerks are busy. Yep. Oh, so uh, Elfangle thinks. Yep. Um, Aloran oh. demorphs. Elfangle does a bad job with his poker face of looking relieved <laughs> and then decides to basically be a shit about what happened to Arbron. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, everything's kind of tense. Uh, everyone is either dazed or quiet. Um, and Elfangor thinks about uh, how Chapman deserves whatever they decide to do with him. Um, and he asks Aloran what his orders are. And Aloran sneers. Ah, now you want orders. When I ordered you to flush those pools full of yurks out into space, you disobeyed me. But now you want orders. Now you want to be told what to do. I was too tired to be angry. I was too tired to consider how my earlier refusal to follow orders would probably destroy my career. What was I going to do? Explain to some military tribunal that I, the insignificant Arths, had thought Aloran's order immoral? Immoral? Sir, the time matrix is silence, you young fool, Aloran snapped angrily. He glared at me, enraged. We don't have time for that yet. No. First, we have to take care of the business you kept me from taking care of. That taxon ship full of yurks is still in its cradle, still filled with yurk slugs. What do you think I've been doing the last day and a half? I've been hiding in shadows, morphing and demorphing, watching that shit. Obsessed much? Um, 
Prince Aloran, is that really the most important thing to do? <laughs> For the first time since he had demorphed, he turned to face me. He glared at me with his main eyes, and that's when I saw the look. That's when I saw the rage. The mad rage. The most important thing in war is to destroy your enemies, Arith's Elfangor. Nothing is more important than destroying your enemies. Do you understand? He turned his stock eyes. Go ahead. So I love how manic his obsession is here. Like that, like I don't know exactly if this is the PTSD, but like his obsession, his projection of his mistake in the past coming back to like fuel this obsession, mm -hmm. what he thinks is right, and like you said earlier, the genocidal tendencies. Like his job is to kill. That is his job, and he's going to do it good. He's not going to mess up. Yeah. I suppose uh, there's something inherently tragic again about Aloran in that regard, because just like once you've already fucked up that bad mm -hmm. and responsible for that many lives, oh, well, you're that guy. Your hands are already stained red. They're never going to be clean. Fine, I'll mm -hmm. be the one that does the bad jobs. I will kill all of them because oh. I'm already ruined. Oh, hey, now I have Rachel emotions. Hey, hello. <sighs> but that, there is something to that. Just like, yeah, I'm the bad guy. I'm the one that does this. Mm-hmm. I'm having aerial emotion. <laughs> but I also have noticed that, like, the three main Andalites seem to embody, like, all of the Animorphs. Like, Aloran mm -hmm. is a little bit of Marco and Rachel. Then you have, um, you have, uh, Arbron, who's a little bit of Marco and I would say even just, like, a little tiny bit of maybe Tobias, mm -hmm. a little bit. And then you have Elfanger, who is definitely a mix of Tobias and Jake, you know? So, like, they're all just kind of, like, a little mix of each other. Although they all seem to be missing Cassie. So. <laughs> Maybe that's their problem. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, there's not much room for Cassie's and Andalite military. Mm. Uh, um, Aloran looks to the subvisor and says, You understand what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> and the subvisor's like, You said you would let me go. And so I will, Aloran said. Open the hatch. Arith's Elfangor. That's a choice vision. It's like, yeah, I'm going to let you go. Bye. <laughs> the subvisor is going to see if that hork body of his can fly. Uh, and the subvisor is like really tense. Uh, he's not sure, like full on fight or flight mode, realizing there's nothing to really fight or flight. Um, he uh seemed to glance at Chapman and I swear but hmm. no, I had to be imagining things. It's just that Chapman seemed to shake his head almost invisibly. Oh, Elfangor, trust your instincts. Yeah, this is the second time, Elfangor. The subvisor's face glazed over. His eyes went dead. He relaxed his muscles. Which, considering we know what happens, like, this poor Yerk. Mm hmm. Um. This poor and Yerk just wanted to be in the theater club, and he finally had a chance to do his <laughs> acting, and then all of a sudden his boss is like, good job doing your acting, now get thrown out of the spaceship. Good job, yep. kiddo. Yep. You did it. Here's your golden globe. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, quotable kit. Yep. Lauren <laughs> orders that Elfangor slow the ship to a dead shop. Dead stop. He asked the altitude. Elfangor's like, oh, we're at 15,000 feet. We're still within the atmosphere. Um, and Aloran said, all right, open the hatch. I do project um, dead stop appropriate. Yeah. Now open the hatch. Yeah. It's like he and Esplin are made for each other. Uh -huh. uh, what Upsetting. could I do? Thanks, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> what could I do? I was just an Arith. I had already defied Aloran once. If I defied him again, he was mad, insane. What could I do? 
I open the hatch, warm taxon air blow in, strange in the enclosed environment. It ruffled Lauren's golden hair. Uh, and basically- Is this really the time, Elfangor? <laughs> Elfangor doesn't look as Lauren orders the subvisor to jump out of the ship, um, which the subvisor does. Um, and Lauren's like, all right, well, now we can go back and fry that transport ship. Good to see you've grown up a little bit, Arth Elfangor. Take us back over the southeastern corner of the spaceship. Maintain present altitude. Then we'll go pick up our missing time matrix, eh? He seemed cheerful, as if, for a moment at least, the madness were past. But I knew it wasn't over. We didn't need to destroy the Yerks in those transport pools. We needed to secure the time matrix. But I had given up arguing. I was tired. I was scared. I was sick from thinking of Arbron. I wanted to sleep and sleep and sleep and not wake up till I was home on my own grass, under my own trees. Mm, I saw Lauren watching trauma. me. Yeah. I saw Lauren watching me. She seemed worried, concerned. Who wouldn't be? And yet. Chapman was watching, too. He seemed tense. Understandable. And yet. What made you decide to come with us, I asked Chapman. Do you expect mercy from us? You betrayed us. You betrayed your fellow human. You've told the Yerks about Earth. You may have betrayed your entire species. He shrugged. Not my fault, though, is it? I was on Earth minding my own business. I didn't ask to be kidnapped by the Skritna. I didn't ask to be dragged halfway across the galaxy by you Andalites. I was just trying to protect myself. And Aloran's like, well, you made tried to make deals with the wrong fucking people. The Yerks don't make deals, they enslave. And Chapman says, yeah, I guess that's what I realized after a while. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) look, I'm sorry, okay? I'm just a dumb human kid, okay? Give me a break. Uh, they come back over the, the spaceport and they're above the, uh, they're above the, above the pool ship or the transport ship. Um, Aloran aims the shredder, taking his time, uh, and orders Elfangor to fire. I said fire. Fry those yerks. You let them live. Now you finish them. Undo your mistake, and no one will ever have to know about your earlier cowardice. Uh, and let's take a moment to appreciate the fact that Aloran is at the weapons station. He spends all of his time lining up the shot, and then he tells Elfangor, come over here. I want you to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. And you know, go mm-hmm. ahead. I'm just saying, I know we've already discussed it a little bit. Now, the more we think about it and seeing like the full like mask off of Lauren, mm-hmm. as it were, it makes you. I, I know we've talked about what it's like to be yerked. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder how much of Visa 3 and the way Visa 3 acts is influenced a little bit by those baser instincts of Lauren. By Lauren's trauma. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're operating a brain that, I mean, like, you can see physical evidence of PTSD in the brain. Yeah. Like, it does, it physically changes the way you react to certain stimuli. Mm-hmm. I would There's something- kind of agree with that. Partially also because, like, it's, it's stated that, like, Lauren never stops fighting as well. So, like, not only is mm-hmm. there the trauma in the brain, but he never stops fighting. But when you go back and read like other books that show earlier versions of this or three, it's like he's not, he's not as like stupid or manic 
as he is yeah, in mm-hmm. later true. books. Like he, he's, he's, he's more calculating. He thinks more. It's like you see, you see the base of what got him to where he is today before he starts the slide into like, oh gosh, what's the word? Supermania? Yes. Thank <laughs> you. So I think you've got a very good point with like the brain trauma they're affecting, not yeah. just Aloran, but also Visser. Yeah. Yeah, the the Esplin we see in the Hork-Bajir Chronicles is obsessed and uh, kind of foolhardy in that obsession. But he's also, like you said, extremely smart, extremely calculating. Uh, and he feels a lot more like a kid. Yeah, extremely basically. ambitious. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know there's the old adage of, um, what's it, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. And like yes. getting the Adelaide body, getting higher and higher up the ranks. Yeah. Um, but it's just interesting to think about. It's just sort of like we we learn about the way that when, every time we talk about morphing, just like the, you can't help but be influenced by the state that you're in. Even just having the memories that you do. It's just really interesting to me and I'm looking forward to reading more stuff and seeing how much this adds mm-hmm. up as we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elfangor refuses uh, to to fire again, um, and it. This is a fact that will come back to hurt us later. Uh, <laughs> um, but he he can't do it, and Aloran puts his tail blade to Elfangor's throat, and he says. You think you can fight a clean war, Elfangor? Is that what you think? Or are you one of those who are happy enough when someone like me does the dirty work for you? They are defenseless, I said as calmly as I could. They are the enemy. Hypocrites. You're all hypocrites. We lost the Hork-Bajir war because of weak, moralizing fools like you. Because of fools like you, I am disgraced and shunned and sent off on trivial errands with nothing but Aureths under my command. Or Prince Aloran, I honor you, but what is the difference how you destroy the enemy? Aloran demanded. I had no idea what he was talking about anymore. He was off somewhere in his own head, lost in his own memories. What does it matter if you kill them with a tail blade or a shredder or a quantum virus? Quantum virus? No. No. Even after all the horror I'd seen, I was shocked. You... You used a quantum virus? You used a quantum virus on the Hork-Bajir world? A quantum virus is a sort of disease of space-time. You see, it slowly breaks down the force that holds subatomic particles together. It slowly disintegrates whatever it affects. Living creatures affected with a quantum virus find their very molecules breaking down. It can take days, weeks, of agony. That was Aloran's secret. That was his disgrace. The Yerks had accused us of using a quantum virus against them. We had denied it. Every Andalite believed it was just another filthy Yerk lie. Aloran stared at me. I cannot have a weak, cowardly fool like you messing up. Uh, and then Chapman intervenes. But before we get to that, let's talk about Aloran's secret. <laughs> <laughs> 